So it's Acts 15, verses 13 to 21. This is part two in sermons. The first church council. Why don't you read along with me? Here's what it says. After they stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the prophets, words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what's strangled and from blood. But Moses, from ancient, or for Moses from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. You know, nearly every society across the ages, people have engaged in playing sports. The most played sport in the world is football, what Americans call soccer. But often there's a special sport in a country that so captures the attention of the fans that it becomes almost part of their national identity. Let me give you some countries and you see if you can identify their identity sport. When you think of Canada, what sport comes to mind? That would be hockey. Yeah, only seven of the 32 NHL teams are from Canada, but did you know that nearly half, 43% of the players in the league are Canadians? The joke that's told is that babies born in, baby boys born in Canada are born with skates already on them. What about the national sport of England? That's cricket. Most Americans are not familiar with cricket. It's somewhat like baseball, but you use a flat bat rather than a round one. How about China? What's their national sport? It's basketball. The NBA brings in a lot of money from China. Back in 2019, when Chinese officials cracked down on the protesters in Hong Kong, the general manager of the Houston Rockets put out a tweet in support of the protesters. The Chinese government was not happy, and they pressured the NBA to take uh, the post down. They didn't want to risk losing market share in China. What's the national sport of New Zealand? That's rugby. And someone like American football, you can run, you can kick, and you can pass the ball, but you have to pass it backwards, not forward. What's the national sport of Scotland? Golf. How about Korea? Taekwondo, which is a form of martial arts. A couple more. What's the national sport of America? Now, officially, it's baseball. You've heard people talk about mom, baseball, and apple pie, but really, our national sport is football. The last one. Japan. What's their national sport? Well, the most popular sport in Japan is baseball. But when you think of Japan, what's the first sport that comes to mind? Sumo wrestling. Sumo wrestling is a sport with a long history, steeped in much tradition, which holds a special place in the hearts of the Japanese people. Now, the first mention of sumo wrestling goes back to 720 AD, uh, which speaks of a match that took place hundreds of years bo before during the reign of the Emperor Sunayan. Uh, one of the contestants was actually killed in that match. Now, today, the matches are not death duels, but they're tests of strength and balance. The object is to either push your opponent outside of the round ring or to knock them to the ground. The first one to fall or get pushed out of the ring loses. Now these matches don't last very long, usually no more than a few seconds. Sometimes they go as long as a minute. 
When given the signal, the wrestlers charge each other, grabbing each other by the belt, and they try to either push them out of the ring or pull them down to the ground. The first one who falls or gets pushed out loses. Now, these matches don't last very long, but uh, the, the rituals that go with the match uh, take a long time. I mean, you have these people that will come together. By the way, they're very large people. The average weight is over 300, and some of them come in at five and 600 pounds. So you can imagine what that looks like. Well, the matches, like I said, only match a few, uh, last a few seconds, but the rituals take uh, much longer. The wrestlers come to the center of the ring, they bow to each other, and then they go back to their own side, and then they do that foot stomp thing. And then they go and they get some paper and power water, and then they grab a handful of salt and they throw it up in the air. Well, it was believed that salt uh, wards off evil spirits. And then the rituals go, uh, they go through these ritual squats, and then after the match is over, they come to the center of the ring and they bow again. Now, being a quintessential Japanese sport, it's not surprising that most of the contestants are Japanese, though there have been some American sumo wrestlers, mainly from Hawaii. But the domination of sumo wrestling by Japanese came to an end in the 1990s. And since 2003, no Japanese sumo wrestler has become a yokozuna, which is the highest rank in the sport. Those positions are held by Mongolians. Yes, the horsemen of the Asian steppes have ridden into Japan and conquered the sport of sumo wrestling. But how did they do that? How did athletes new to the sport come to dominate it in less than a decade? I mean, Mongolian boys aren't raised to be sumo wrestlers. That's true, but every Mongolian boy learns a different kind of wrestling from his very youngest age. The form of wrestling they engage in is called book, which uh, goes back to Genghis Khan. Well, he wanted his warriors to be in shape, and so the skills that are needed in bulk wrestling are very similar to those that are used in sumo wrestling. And so over the last 30 years, Mongolians have displaced the Japanese in a sport that was invented and dominated by those in Japan. Now, how have the Japanese reacted? Well, some have embraced the shift, but a lot of others are not very well pleased. The schools that train sumo wrestlers are called stables. The Sumo Wrestling Association passed a rule that allows for only one foreigner in each stable. Now, right about now, you should be thinking, hmm, I wonder what sumo wrestling has to do with the text this morning. But I think there is a tie-in. And it's this. Just as it was difficult, has been very difficult for many Japanese sumo wrestling fans to come to grips with the fact that their beloved sport is being infused with and even dominated by foreigners, so the early Jewish followers of Jesus had difficulty adjusting to the inflow of Gentile believers in the church. You see, in the early part of the church's history, nearly 100% of the followers of Jesus were Jewish. But that began to shift as the years rolled by. And it's gotten to the point today where 99.99% of the church is made up of Gentiles, not those from Jewish backgrounds. Well, this influx of Gentile believers into the church caused not only unease for the Jewish believers, but also raised questions, important questions. Do these Gentiles need to be circumcised? Are they required to keep the Mosaic law? Can they even be saved if they don't? Well, this became such a debate, a hotly debated topic in the city of Antioch, that they decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to have the apostles settle this issue. Well, because this issue is uh, such a significant one at that time, it doesn't seem so at our time, but it touches on what it means to be a Christian and how a person gets saved. I think it's worth us taking a look at this morning. So let's bring it into the text. Father God, we pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see this and why it matters so much even today. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, because the church is dominated by Gentiles rather than Jews today, it's hard for us to understand just how difficult it was for these Jewish believers to accept the idea that Gentiles could be brought into the church without first becoming Jews. But I think we could give you a word picture that helped you imagine that. Imagine you had an Amish uh, community around here, old Amish order. And uh, one of their settlements, there's some Somalis that have moved into the area, and they've asked to join the Amish community. Now, the Somalis want to become Amish, but they don't want to give up their cars and their electricity. They also want to maintain their own way of dressing. Now, how do you think the elders would respond? I mean, the Somalis might be sincere, but can you be Amish and drive cars and use electric washers and dryers? I mean, you can imagine old, old Amish elder pounding his fist on the table and saying, unless these Somalis give up electricity and the men wear beards and the ladies wear bonnets, they cannot be Amish. Well, something like that was happening in the church in uh, Jerusalem. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, we read that some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it's necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, after a fair amount of debate, Peter got up and recounted his experience at Cornelius' house where when he preached the gospel, a number of Gentiles got saved. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. From this, Peter understood that it was by hearing and believing the gospel, not by being circumcised, that any person becomes a believer. Well, after Barnabas and Paul recounted their own experience preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and God backing up their message by the granting of miracles by their hand, James then got up and spoke. And in his words, we see three things. The first thing we see is the scripture he cites. That's verses 13 to 18. Secondly, the conclusion he draws. That's verse 19. And finally, the policies he suggests, which is 20 to 21. So the scripture he cites, it says, After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Peter, had related, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of the mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now, before we get consider the passage in Amos that James cites, we have to take note of the fact that he saw that something was happening that was new, that God was taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. Now that language, though, is the language that was applied to Israel in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Remember in 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says this, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Now God's people called by his name was Israel. They were the chosen nation, the people of God's own possession. In Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, You only have I chosen of all the families of earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. God called Abraham when he was living in the land of the Chaldeans. And he entered into a covenant relationship with his descendants, giving him the law at Sinai. But even at the beginning when Abraham was called, God told him that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12.3 so James understood that the experience that Peter had and Paul and Barnabas had and that they were relating to the church proved that these ancient prophecies of the ingathering of the Gentiles was now beginning to happen. Now this was a bright, beautiful, and a wonderful thing. But these Jewish believers would some come, soon come to see that there was a tragic, sad side that was accompanying the wonderful work of God. 
For while increasing numbers of Gentiles were coming to faith, fewer and fewer Jews were responding. Most Jews in that day and throughout the centuries have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Do you remember when Jesus, what he said after that Roman centurion demonstrated such amazing faith? The Lord said this, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west, meaning Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, meaning the Jews, will be cast out into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 11 to 12. So this is why we send out missionaries, to gather into the church people from the east and the west. Indeed, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means called out ones. Christians are those who have been called out from a dark, perishing world to be Christ's followers who will someday be resurrected to join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Christ's kingdom, which will be established on the earth. Remember in the parable of the rented vineyard, the one with the tenant farmers who end up killing the landowner's son. Jesus ended by telling the religious leaders who were plotting his death, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The people who produce the fruit of it are the Gentiles in the church who are actually saved. In Romans 9, Paul speaks of his unceasing sorrow that he has in his heart because his countrymen, the Jews, were perishing in their unbelief. But he goes on to explain that the stumbling of the Jews over Jesus and the rejection of the gospel is actually part of God's plan, being used by him to bring Gentiles into the church. Paul then quotes from the book of Deuteronomy where God, speaking to Moses, says this of Israel, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. By a nation without understanding... I will anger you. You see, in this age, the church is made up of a few Jews and many Gentiles who constitute the people of God. Israel in her present situation is described by Isaiah as a barren woman rejected by the hus her husband of her youth because of her unfaithfulness, Isaiah 54. But both Isaiah and Paul speak of a future day when this forsaken wife will be brought back by God, these alienated people, will be reconciled to God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 11, 25 to 29, For I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, so that you'll become wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Jewish people oppose the gospel. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that James could have cited to prove that God's plan has always included calling Gentiles to be his people. That's why he said with this, the word of the prophets, plural, agree. But he picks up one prophecy from Amos to prove his assertion. If you have a Bible with you there, turn over to Amos chapter 9. See if you can find it. Amos chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 8. I want you to see some things in this. Because this is the passage that James is quoting from. If you're around Daniel, it's right after that. And look at verse 8. Listen to what it says. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are in the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. He's talking about Israel. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, for I, behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among the, all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve. But not a kernel will fall to the ground. 
All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overcome us or take us or confront us. Now this is speaking of that period right before Jesus returns or what the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. That's when the Antichrist will be used by God to chastise his people after which he will actually rescue them from his hand. It's at that time that God will redeem them that's the truth that lies behind the promise that we see starting in verse 11. Look what it says. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and I will wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as of days of old, then they may, uh, that they might possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord uh, who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of the uh, grapes, him who sows. When the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink from them and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I also will plant them in their land and they will not be rooted out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now notice that these blessings for Israel come in the day that I raise up the fallen booth of David. Now, some commentators say that the fallen booth of David is the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple is always identified as the temple of Solomon, not David. It seems more likely to me that the prophet is actually speaking of David's dynasty, his house. Well, who's the last king who occupied the throne of David? Do you know? It was the king Zedekiah. He's only about 30 years old at the time. Now, David's throne, which is occupied by Jesus, or is to be occupied by Jesus, some of the commentators say, well, he's doing that already because he's in heaven on the throne. So Jesus' fallen booth was raised up when Jesus was risen from the dead. And then 40 days later, when he ascended back up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God, therefore he's seated on David's throne. Now that Jesus is going to be seated on David's throne is made clear because the angel Gabriel said to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He shall be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and he will, uh, the Lord God will give him the, father, uh, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But Jesus didn't speak of reigning on David's throne then, but yet sometime in the future. Listen to what he says in Matthew 25, 31-32. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven cannot be the fulfillment of the restoration of David's fallen booth. Why is that? Well, we know because the promise that Amos makes that we just read about this restoration, God tells him that he's going to regather them, replant them, and they will never be uprooted from their land again. But they were uprooted from their land a hundred years after Jesus returned to heaven. In 132 AD, the Romans crushed the Jews in the Bar Kokhba revolt, and they were scattered across the world for 18 centuries, and they only came back to the land of Israel in 1948. Now, you might notice that the quote that James gives from Amos doesn't quite match up with what we read in Amos. Our Old Testament translation is taken from the Hebrew Masoretic text, but James quotes from the Greek Septuagint text, and there's slight distance. Now both speak of rebuilding the fallen tent of David, but in verse 12 in Amos, God says they will do this so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. But when James quotes it from the Greek version, it reads, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles 
were called by my name. James doesn't even mention Eden, Edom. But the basic thrust of the passage is the same, that as a result of David's fallen booth or tent being rebuilt, the Gentiles will seek the Lord. But there's another significant difference between the text in Amos and what James says. Amos introduced that section by saying this, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. But when James starts, he says, After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Well, why does James change it? I think it's because he understood that the rebuilding of the David's fallen booth would only occur after God takes a people for himself among the Gentiles, the church. And then when Jesus returns and takes his seat on the throne of David, it's after that time that the rest of mankind will seek the Lord. All the Gentiles were called by my name. So if you've been tuning out until then, I want you to get this now. Listen carefully. The Bible teaches in both the Old and the New Testament that the conversion of the nations of the world come after Jesus returns, not before. There's many verses in the Bible that teach this, but let's give just a couple where I think this is taught clearly. Zephaniah 3, 8-10. This is in the context of the last day judgment, the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns and pours out his wrath against a rebellious people. We read this, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the zeal, um, the fire of my zeal. But then look what he goes on to say will happen as a result of this. For then, after this wrath is poured out, I will give the peoples, meaning the Gentile nations, purified lips that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the river of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring me offerings. So the result, after God's wrath is poured out, is that the nations are converted. Revelation 15, verse 6, has the same idea. We have here a scene of the angels. They're preparing to pour out the bowls of wrath on the earth. And as they do, the saints in heaven say this, starting in verse 3. It says, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Listen to this. For all the nations will come, future tense, and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, it's after God's wrath is poured out that all the nations come to worship him. So the conversion of the nations comes after Christ's return, after God's wrath has been poured out. In Psalm 2, God the Father says this to God the Son, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, he sees one who looks like the Son of Man, who comes before the throne of the Ancient of Days, and we're told this, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the nations and peoples of every tribe and, uh, and language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, as I mentioned earlier, many commentators say that, no, Christ is ruling now on David's throne in heaven. But the scriptures teach us that someday Christ will rule on earth and that his throne will actually be in Jerusalem. Let me give you a few verses that bear that out. Jeremiah 3, 16 to 17, it says this. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land. He's talking to Israel, declares the Lord. They will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 
And it won't even come to mind. And no one will remember it. Or nor will they miss it. Nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to, Jer- uh, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore in the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So see the picture? Jesus is on his throne in Jerusalem. The nations are coming in. And it says no longer are they going to walk in stubbornness. Hosea 1.11 speaks of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, being brought back together in the end time. It says this, And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great is the day of Jezreel. Well, who do you think the one leader is that they're going to appoint over them? It's Jesus, their long-rejected Messiah. Micah 4, 6-7 says this, In those days, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from then on and forevermore. And Revelation 20, 4-6 says this, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them. And it was given to them judgment, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast in his image and had not received the mark, his mark, on their forehead or hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. And I want you to listen to what they're talking about. The ones that are being resurrected here are those who have been uh, killed by the Antichrist at the end, but it also includes all the believers who've died in the generations before. That includes us if we're believers. We're going to be resurrected to reign with Christ for a thousand years on this earth. And your position and your place and your authority in that kingdom is dependent on how faithful you are right now. I have a real simple life goal. It's to bring as many people into the kingdom as I can and once they're in, to help them live for the glory of God, to maximize their own happiness in this age to come. Do you understand why it would be such a sin just to waste time? Just to scroll on your phone for six hours? You know, I look at all my books. I have books. And I look at them and I get sad every time I look at them. You know why? Because I have 1,500 books and there's no way I'm going to read them in my lifetime. I told Suzanne, I said, I hope these aren't destroyed when Jesus comes back because I'd like to read them in eternity. Because you only get a certain amount of time. What are you doing with your time? For some of you, you're not even saved yet, so you're heading for hell. You're never going to be, you're going to be part of the second resurrection, which is a resurrection under condemnation. But even if you're saved, are you using your time wisely? Are you investing in things that matter? You know, it's funny because I can, I can preach about stuff like this and I see people just kind of glaze over, oh, I don't know, I mean, who's playing today? You'll be raised to, to rule over the world. And I start to wonder, are you saved? How can you hear about these things and it not move your heart? How can it not thrill you? How can it not fill your imagination? You know why? You ever seen the commercials that they have? None of this is in my sermon, right? I'm just going off right now. You ever, you ever see those commercials they used to have where they take a little baby duck with feathers on it and whatnot and it's covered in oil and it's all gooped up and then they bring out some Dawn dishwashing soap and they, you know, and they, and they clean it and the little ducky goes away happy? You know what? That's what we're like in America. We're like those ducks filled with black gooey tar. We can't even fly anymore. 
because we're weighed down by it. The things we're weighed down by in this country are not just the evil things we do. It's the simple things, the pleasant things, the wonderful things, the things that keep me from going to church on Sunday, from being in Bible study, from being in prayer, because I'm just too busy with other things. Now, I want to tell you something. I want to warn you something. Do you suppose that if you're too busy for God now, he might be too busy for you on Judgment Day? Jesus said, those who serve me, my Father will honor. What about those who don't serve. Remember those sermons that we had, or the parables that we had about the servants who said, nah, you know what, I'm just going to bury the talent you gave me. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. When I come back, I'll just give it back to you. What happened to those servants? They were thrown in hell. The fact that they didn't serve God showed that their heart had never been changed. Whatever their profession was, they weren't actually saved. You know, it says of Jacob that he worked for Rachel for seven years, actually 14 when it's all said and done. But it says it seemed but a few days because he loved her so. When people love Jesus, it's not a big pain to serve them. It's not a big chore to read their Bibles. It's not a, oh, I've got to arrange my schedule, otherwise I can't go to that Bible study and they're going to get on my case. Man, if that's where you're at, you've got to ask yourself, do I really know the Lord? I don't know. Changes the heart. Well, Jesus hasn't received his inheritance yet. All the nations today are not serving him, but they will when God rebuilds the fallen booth of David. So then the rest of mankind will seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So in this age, God is calling out for himself among the Gentiles a people who he calls the church. And after Christ returns and takes his seat on David's throne, then the nations will be converted. James understood that since God was going to save the Gentiles and as Gentiles in the end, it makes perfect sense to allow the Gentiles to come into the church as Gentiles without first circumcising them so as to become Jews. Now, I took so much time on this first point that I can only touch on the last two points very lightly and we're going to come back to them. So the first point has to do with the scripture that James cites. The next thing I want you to see is the conclusion that he draws. That's verse 19. He says, Therefore, it's my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. You see, requiring Gentile converts to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law, Peter said that was a burden that we even couldn't bear. And James thinks that to do so would cause the Gentiles trouble that they don't need. Look, anyone and everyone is saved the same way, by trusting in Christ's death as the payment of their sins, and Christ's resurrection as our victory over death. Rituals and rites, ceremonies and liturgies, creeds and confessions might have a limited place in the church, but what saves a person is faith and faith in Christ alone. So why load down these new converts with a lot of rules and regulations that can't make you more holy? Writing to the Colossians, Paul was talking to people who were getting stuck into this kind of religion. He said this, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you're still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees like, Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. These matters, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but it's of no value against fleshly indulgences, Colossians 2, 21 to 23. I mean, you can beat your back with a whip a hundred times, but it's not going to help you get sin out of your life. What you need is to trust Christ, not flay your backs. That brings us to our last point, though. The policy he suggests, this is in 20 to 21. So instead of troubling these Gentile converts, James said, but we are, but, uh, that we should write to them, telling them to abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from things that are strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, in every city has those who preach him, since he's read in the synagogues, 
every Sabbath. And we don't have time this morning to go through those th specific policies, suggestions that James makes. We're actually going to come back to them when we look at his, the letter they sent out next week. But uh, I, I think it needs to be pointed out that these practices that James mentions are things that would have been particularly offensive to the Jews. So the Jews need to make an adjustment in their outlook uh, to accommodate the Gentiles, but the Gentiles needed to make some adjustments in their practices, not only to pursue holiness, but to get along better with the Jews in the church. Now, I started by making a comparison between the effects of Mongolians coming into uh, sumo wrestling with Gentiles coming into the Jewish church. Now, the situation is similar in one sense, but you know, in another sense, it's vastly different. Because sumo wrestling is still just a game. But how a person gets saved, that's not a game. And that's not a sport. It's the most important question the church can ask. And it's the most important question you can ask. How is a person saved? And am I saved? People are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other way. If you come to God, you have to come that way. What I'm asking is, have you come to God? through Christ. If not, today would be a really good day to do it. Let's pray. Our Father and God, I mean, this is not a debate in our culture today. Nobody's insisting that Gentiles have to be circumcised to be part of the church, but there's a lot of people who believe that there's something you do other than trust in Christ to get to heaven, good deeds, rituals, be baptized, be confirmed, all these things. Lord, those things have a place in the church, but that is not what determines whether a person is a believer or not. It's only faith in Christ. And so I pray for the people here, Lord, uh, the ones who've heard the gospel and know they're not saved yet, the ones who have heard the gospel and think they're saved and may not be saved, and Father and God, for those of us who have believed the gospel, that we would proclaim this everywhere we go. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you stand and we're going to sing together. 417. 417.